I praise you, Lord, for your word and for the glorious, life-changing good news about who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. And I pray for your help this morning as I preach, as I teach. Would you give me wisdom and would you give me a heart that is in accord with these amazing truths, sobering truths that we'll be talking about this morning. And I pray that everyone here would be drawn to Christ, drawn to Jesus Christ through what we hear this morning as we talk about our sin and how we've responded wrongly to you. So move upon us with power, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, that's our topic for this morning, is um, how have we responded to God? And what does the Bible answer in terms of how we've responded to God? And the, the answer is not good news. It's not good news at all. As I thought about today's topic, it struck me that there is a huge barrier that I would guess every single one of us has which can keep us from really embracing what the scriptures say about our sin. I describe it number one there on your your notes. Some of us, I think probably all of us to some extent, think, we've been taught this from our culture, that what's most important is feeling good about ourselves. This has been drilled into us since about the 1970s, 80s, 90s. So we think that that's what's most important, is feeling good about ourselves. And if that's true, then we're suspicious of anything that would come towards us that would not make us feel good about ourselves, or that would make us feel bad about ourselves. It's a big problem if we're going to be talking about what the Bible says about sin. Because I want to tell you just straight up, the Bible does not leave us feeling good about ourselves. It just doesn't. No way I can whitewash that. No way I can divert around that. It just flat out does not leave us feeling good about ourselves. If you don't believe me, give me another 5, 10, 15 minutes and you'll see. Now, number two, that may sound like really bad to you because we we can tend to think, well, if I don't feel good about myself, then I'm not going to feel good. No! (laughs) No! Oh, if you think that, I've got great news for you. Because if the, if the good feeling you've been trying to get all your life is feeling good about yourself, you've settled for like puny little good feelings that are so flighty and so hard to hold on to because it's bucking against all of what the Bible teaches. What God says is, Jesus wants you to feel really, really good. Really good. Not about yourself, but about Him. We talked last week, we were, we were all wired to have our highest joys be from beholding greatness. And that's not the greatness that's inside us. That's the greatness of who God is and who Jesus is. But see, our culture has taught us, like you go to the Grand Canyon, and we're supposed to spend the whole time looking at ourselves, thinking about how great we are, when in front of us is a grand canyon that should leave us breathless with awe. So, if you've been raised to think that what's most important is feeling good about yourself, then I think I have good news for you, because if that's true, you've been missing a massive amount of the joy that you could be having. 
Because the doorway to seeing Jesus' glory is seeing our sin first and foremost. In fact, the more clearly I see my sin and you see your sin, the more spectacular will be Jesus. It'll just bust you. Tragedy is, a lot of us, and this gets communicated in Christian circles a lot of the time too, is if you've thought that you've got to be feeling good about yourself, that will blind you to seeing the full dazzling display of Jesus, what he's done for us on the cross. Now just a caution, some of you are prone to feeling bad about yourself. You're prone to discouragement, you're prone to depression, and so you maybe just heard and just said, I knew it. I've been right all along. I totally suck, you know. I can't do anything. This is the church for me. You know, I've known it all along. I'm feeling right at home here. This is perfect, you know. No, okay? Now, a word to you, and that is, yes, we we all suck, and we can't do anything in of ourselves, yes, but you stop there. That's sin. There's a glorious Jesus who says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. So we say with Paul, yes, I can do anything in myself. Jesus said, unless you abide in me, you can do nothing. Okay, there it is, right there. It's true. But we can be with Paul in Philippians 4.13. He says, I can do all things. Don't stop there. Through Christ, who amazing, amazing for somebody who can't do anything through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm feeling really good about Christ who strengthens somebody even like me. So don't hear this morning as, yes, I should just really feel lousy about myself and just sink even deeper away from Jesus into my hole to suck my thumb. That's not what we're talking about at all. Okay? That's sin. I know. I do that. Okay, well, I haven't done the sucking thumb part yet, but give me... Okay, all right. Yes, yes, we need to see fully what the Scripture says about us. And I'm praying, I've been blown away this week, and I'm not even scratching the surface of it myself, and I'm praying that we can all be more blown away by our sinfulness. So that, so that, so that we can see Jesus' mercy and love magnified all the more. All right. Okay, number three. Uh, I just want to drill a little deeper in that. I kind of got ahead of myself. So let me backtrack a little bit. Does God want us to focus on our sinfulness? If we have been saved, shouldn't we focus on who we are now in Christ? And I would say the answer to both of those is yes. Yes, focus on your sinfulness. And yes, on who we are now in Christ. God does want us to focus on our sinfulness, not so we despair, sink deep, but so we see more clearly the glory of Jesus in saving us, in redeeming us. Just keep reading. That's why Paul urges us to remember our past sinfulness. He talks to Christians. Ephesians 1, Colossians chapter uh, 1, Ephesians chapter 5. He tells us, remember who you were. Remember what you were. Remember the sinful person that you were. Remember, remember, remember. Why? One reason is many of us are wired to pride. I am. I'm, I'm like, my default mode is proud. 
proud. Some of you, I'm lousy, that's not me. I'm proud. That's my default sin. Okay, you've, all, you've got to kind of take into account who you are, where you're at. I've got to be reminded constantly of my sinfulness. And I think probably all of us do, even if we tend to get discouraged, so that we'll see Jesus more. And that's why Paul tells us to remember, remember, remember. God never tells us to ignore our sinfulness. Forgetting what lies behind, doesn't that mean forgetting our sinfulness? No. It does not mean forgetting our sinfulness. It means forgetting the things in which we used to boast. Chapter 3, verses 4 through 6 of Philippians. It's true that we should rejoice in how Christ has saved, forgiven, redeemed, adopted, predestined, sanctified, justified us. But the greatest joy in what Christ has done comes only as we clearly see our sinfulness. He justified this sinner. He adopted this sinner. He loves this sinner. He's redeemed this sinner. He has saved this sinner. The more clearly I see my sinfulness, the more blazingly glorious his mercy appears, which is my joy. So the more I see my sin and let it show me Jesus, the more joy I'm going to have. Here's some of the benefits that come from pondering our sinfulness. This is so countercultural, gang, isn't it? I mean, this is, I think, one of the most big false gods in our culture is that we've got to feel good about ourselves. And this, I think, has seeped into the church. It just kind of colors everything. So if you're balking at this right now, I love you, and I understand, and, um, and I'm praying. Here's some benefits that come from pondering our sinfulness. We're more humbled before Jesus and rely on him more. Paul says an amazing thing in Romans 7. He's just listed out the battle of sin that he has, and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. So he's humbled. We experience the godly grief that leads further into salvation. Should we confess our sins when we sin? Yes, Do we sin every day? Yes. Should sin cause us sorrow? Yes. Should we sorrow for our sin every day? Yes. Do we? No. There's a godly grief, though, that leads further into salvation when we remember our sinfulness, even today's sinfulness. We are humble before others and love them more. It should be Titus 3, verses 1 through 3 there. When I'm proud about other people, start thinking I'm better than other people, I am blind to my sinfulness. Whose sin do I know best of anybody's? Like mine. Okay, I don't know your heart. I know my heart. Okay? I've got a lot of sin in my heart. I'm a sinful man. I know my sin better than anybody else's sin. How can I think I'm better than anybody else? It's because I tend to ignore my own sin. There's benefits. And then here's this last one. Remember the woman who came to Jesus? washing his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. And Jesus tells the story, and the punchline is, he who is forgiven little loves little. But he who is forgiven much loves much. Do you want to love Jesus much? Then see how much you've been forgiven for and see it every day. Every day. And you'll love Jesus much. Do you have trouble loving Jesus? This could be the reason why. Okay, that's, that's my introduction. One through three. Number four, to understand our sinfulness then, we need to start with God's holiness and righteousness. Talked about this last week. God is holy. His perfections 
wisdom, goodness, love, power, might, authority, sovereignty. His perfection set him infinitely above everything else that is. God is massive and glorious, huge, splendid, awesome, infinite in his majesty. And then his righteousness, what's righteous for a God like that to do? He does everything to uphold and display his perfections. He delights in the fellowship of the Trinity, delights in his perfections. His burning passion is to uphold his perfections and display his perfections. And so he created to do that. He created so that he could share and display his perfections, his creativity, his wisdom, his power, his love, his goodness. And so that's why he created, to display perfection so all of us would have the joy of beholding a being of infinite love. He displayed perfections out of love for us so that we could see who he is. Namely, infinite love, wisdom, power, and goodness, who not only provides all we need, but who is in himself our all-satisfying treasure. So God creates solar system, universe, world, people, right? pomegranates and apples and oranges and men and women and sex and breathing and eyes that can see and ears that can hear and skin that can touch and he created waterfalls and sunsets and the moon and the stars and you know plants and animals and he created everything to say look at who i am i mean look at creation god is good what did you do to deserve this <laughs> he just made you here life here a world Do you see who I am? Enjoy the world so that you see my perfections and enjoy beholding me and worshiping me. It's awesome what he's done for us. So how should we respond then to our creator God? This is number five. Who through creation has displayed perfect love, wisdom, power, and goodness toward us. Doesn't it make sense that we should? I listed five things. Shouldn't we constantly celebrate his infinite goodness? Like, let's see, the sharks won the last Monday night? No. Tuesday night. That's right. Okay, last Tuesday night, Sharks won. Okay, we know, I know they lost since then. Put that out of your mind momentarily. But so if you're like a real Sharks fan, Wednesday morning at work, like you were dying to talk to people about how well the Sharks did, right? Who was the one guy who scored two goals? I'm not a huge Sharks fan anyway. But you were just dying to talk to somebody about it to celebrate the Sharks' goodness, right? Okay, now, the Sharks' goodness is like a millimeter compared to infinite number of light years of God's goodness, which he's displayed through creation. And so isn't it right that we should constantly celebrate God's infinite goodness, which is what worship is? Isn't it right that we devote our lives to beholding and displaying his glory? Isn't it right? I mean, look at him. (laughs) I want to live my life to display your glory. Isn't it right to trust him completely? I mean, look at what he did in creation. He's good, he's wise, he's loving. Creation is flawless. All of his intentions are laid out there clearly. So how could we not trust him completely? Depend upon him for everything. How could we not obey him without question? Right? Flip the page over, top of the next page. Now, does this feel too demanding? Okay, well, what if I gave you an ice cream cone and said... Enjoy this with all your heart. Thou, thou shalt enjoy this with all your heart for the next ten minutes. Is that too demanding? No, because it's an ice cream cone. Okay? 
God has displayed who he is. Infinite goodness, majesty. Your highest joy is in beholding his glory and goodness and power and wisdom and majesty. That's your highest joy. And God says, devote yourself to enjoying the highest enjoyment. If that feels demanding to you, which it probably does to all of us to some extent, it's because there's still some sin in us if you've been saved. And if you haven't yet been saved, then it's just all sin. That's why it feels demanding. It's because we're sinful people. But it shouldn't feel demanding. Every command given by God comes from perfect love, wisdom, power, and goodness. All of God's commands are commands to pursue our greatest good in knowing him because he is our greatest good. Okay, so there's creation, God's holiness, righteousness. He's displayed his goodness, infinite in love, infinite in goodness, wisdom. Number six, what happened? This is absolutely astonishing. Adam and Eve sinned. Genesis 3, you can read about that. We inherited Adam's sinful nature. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And as a result, all of us are sinners by nature and choice. How bad was our sin? Romans 3, 10 through 12. Listen to what Paul says. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, how can Paul say that no one does good? I'll bet most of us have thought that before Jesus saved us, we we did some bad things, but we did some good things. No, you didn't. No good things. How can Paul say that no one does good? It's because good, verse 12, means seeking God. God is good. He's supreme goodness. Okay? And even though we, for example, usually told the truth and often were kind, we did not seek God ever. Before you were saved... You told the truth because, you know, it made sense. Got your head in your business or you didn't want your reputation smeared. You were kind at times because, you know, you wanted to feel good about yourself for feeling kind. But before you were saved, you never told the truth or were kind as a response to God's goodness, relying on God's mercy and grace for God's glory, seeking God. God was not in the picture at all. We did things that looked good. Not to seek God, but to impress others or feel good about ourselves. We created religions and pursued spirituality. Not to seek God, but to stroke our pride or to find inner peace apart from God. That's where all the other religions have come from. But none of us ever sought God. So nothing we did was good. Everything we did was sin. Everything. Now, do you see why I wanted to warn you about the danger of thinking that what Christianity is all about is making you feel good about yourself? It's just not. It's not. None is righteous. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Here's some things that uh, Jesus said. Mark 12. Here's an example of pursuing religion without seeking God. In his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes, they were the real religious people at the time, who liked to walk around in long robes, 
like greetings in the marketplaces, have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. The greater condemnation. Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable. He says, the Pharisee, another religious person, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And here's Jesus' verdict. He says, I tell you, Everyone who exalts himself like this Pharisee will be humbled in judgment. So there's nothing that we did. Just You've got to let this sink in. I've got to let this sink in. I don't see this clearly enough. If you can get this, if you can feel this, that before Jesus saved you, or if you haven't been saved, this is true of you right now, there's nothing you do that's good. Everything that you do is sin. Everything. The person who dedicates $5 million to Stanford University, you know, and has the name, you know, written up in the, in the paper, that, that's good for Stanford University. It's good to see some poor people be able to go who couldn't have afforded to go otherwise. It's good on one level, but what they did was not for the sake of God, unless they've been saved, and, but let's assume not, because then they wouldn't have had it written up in the paper. You know, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, kind of a thing. So we've got to let the scriptures inform our judgment on who we are, what we were, how we've lived. And the scriptures say that nothing we did was good. Everything that we did was sin. Keep reading. It's not that we tried to seek God and weren't able to. We didn't want God. We turned away from God. Before I was 17 years old, that's how I lived. I went to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Okay, I went to church a lot. I I tried to be a spiritual person. But it wasn't because of God. The girls were cute. My friends were there. My parents wanted me to go. Okay, this was kind of a win-win. It could work out. Best, you know, make it work. So I went to church a lot. I I, I didn't know Jesus. I never sought God. Some of you maybe think that because you're in church, that's a good thing. It's not, unless you're seeking God. If you're you're seeking the living Jesus, if that's why you're here, it's a wonderful thing. If you're not, it's not. Do you feel that? Get this next verse. This is astonishing. Four chapters after God created the world and displayed his goodness. People have multiplied, filled the globe. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every one of those words is right there in the Hebrew. I checked it myself. Great, that's there. Every intention, that's there. Only evil continually. Three words, they're all right there. Everybody. The whole globe. Only Evil continually. doesn't mean we're all serial killers and rapists, okay? A lot of really good people, moral people, upright people on the outside, but none of it was for seeking God, and so it was all sin, just like the Pharisees. Do you see that? 
This is true of every single human being, then and now. We didn't want God, we didn't seek God, and therefore every single thought, attitude, action was only evil continually. So, so this is you. See, you are there in Genesis 6-5. I'm there in Genesis 6-5. That's the truth about Steve Fuller. That's who I was and left to myself would still be. That's the true me, okay, before Jesus saved me. And when he saved me, it's because he saved me, not because of anything I did. Sin is not that, we're, that we wanted to attain God's standards, but we're unable. It's that we wanted nothing to do with God and turned away from him and his standards. Okay, top of the next page. So maybe we didn't know about God. Is that why? Was it ignorance? No. God's creation gives us everything we need to know about God so we would seek and trust him completely. Instead, we all turn from him. Look at Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Why? Why is God's wrath revealed? For what can be known about God is plain. Plain to them. It's plain. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, his goodness, his love, his wisdom, his mercy, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Clearly perceived. So they are without excuse. I am without excuse. First 17 years of my life, I knew as plain as day God is good, loving, wise, glorious. I deserve, he deserves all my praise. He's my joy. I knew all about who God was. And I said, no, not interested. Janet's cute. Sally's fun. You know, I'll just go my own way. All of us are there. We are without excuse. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature. Created things, idols, money, sex, fame, served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we can't plead ignorance. I didn't need more information when I was 15 years old. I had all the information I needed. I didn't want God. I knew full well who God was. I'd like to run my own life. Thank you. I knew enough. You knew enough. Number eight. Was it our environment that made us sin? No. Jesus taught that sin comes from our own hearts. He said... What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. Picture a glass up here. Full of bitter water. Evil water. Okay, glass gets bumped, evil water spills out. The bumping didn't cause the evil of the water. The bumping just brought out what was inside. Right? Here I am. 
Okay, that's me right there. All that stuff. That's in Steve Fuller's heart. I get bumped. Bleh, evil comes out. Okay, it's not what bumped me that brought out the evil. The evil was in me. It was inside of me. If you were put in a pristine, perfect environment where everything was provided for you, all your needs met, stress-free, no interruptions, everything you could do, everything exactly that you wanted to do, you'd be evil. You'd sin. Because it comes from within. It's not about the environment. Environment can channel the wickedness in different ways, but it doesn't cause the wickedness. Let me drill a little deeper here. I want us to see just how sinful we are. What about free will? I mean, it sounds like we're really, really sinful. Can't we, can't we like decide not to be sinful? I believe God's word teaches that we are free to do whatever we want. Now, there's more to be said about that to connect that with God's sovereignty and everything else, but that's, that's enough for this paragraph. We're free to do whatever we want. But I believe Scripture teaches, there's some Scriptures coming here, that we are so sinful that none of us wants God. If you're free to do whatever you want, and you don't want God, will you turn to God? Not left to yourself, you won't. So left to ourselves, we never want to repent before God and trust Jesus as our Lord, Savior, supreme treasure. Here's some verses. Jesus says, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? He's just told this rich man, Sell everything, follow me. And the rich man walked away because he didn't want to sell everything. And the disciples said, That's no way to build a movement. It's not going to happen, Jesus. Who's going to get saved if you start talking that way? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. You may have heard that there was a gate around the city wall called, what was it called? Do I have a needle or something? No, there's not. There's just not. Okay? There's no gate where if a camel kneels down, it can make it through. There's just not. The word impossible is here for a reason. It's impossible. Okay? It's absolutely impossible. To be saved, we need to want Jesus more than money. That's what has to happen. I mean, makes total sense, doesn't it? I mean, compare Jesus with money. I mean, if you see things clearly, it's obvious. But see, that is impossible given where my heart was from year zero to year 16. But it's not impossible with God. He can change our hearts. He's changed my heart. He is changing my heart. Jesus in John 8.34 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Slave. Slave. You're in bondage to your own wants. No one's holding you in sin against your will. It's your own will that holds you there because that's what you want. You're a slave to your wants, and your wants are evil, and so you're a slave to evil wants. Romans 8, 7, the mind that is set in the flesh, it's hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. John 6, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God's got to work to change our wills. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. No one can come to me unless it, the coming, is granted him from the Father. Here's how Martin Luther puts it. Hence it follows that free will without God's grace is not free at all, but is the permanent prisoner 
and bond slave of evil. Who is evil? You're evil. My evil. I'm to blame. You're to blame. So if God left us to ourselves, none of us would ever want to turn to Jesus and be saved. That's how sinful we all were. Do you feel that? This is so important. And I I want to press this. Maybe this is farther than you've ever been pressed on this. Maybe not. If it is, I make no apologies because my passion is that you, you and your heart would be set ablaze with love for Jesus Christ. And the more you see your sinfulness, as the Bible lays it out, see, none of us sees it clearly enough. And the more you see it, the more ablaze your heart will be set in love to Jesus Christ. My passion is to have you leaving here today loving Jesus Christ. And he who has forgiven much, seeing that we've sinned much, he's forgiven much, loves much. Okay, let's press a little deeper. I'm not done yet. You're maybe waving the white towel, calling, okay, enough. It's not enough yet. How evil is our sin? It's far worse than we think. Each act of sin profanes the infinitely glorious God of the universe. Leviticus 22. God says, so you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name. If we don't keep his commandments, we profane his holy name. We profane him. See, we tend to think of sin mostly on a horizontal level, okay? Like, you know, I hurt somebody else, they get hurt, and that's bad. Well, that is bad. It's bad for somebody else to be hurt. That's a bad thing. But the evil of that, as significant and as real as it is, pales in comparison to the evil of how I've profaned the glory of the all-majestic God who's created me and ruling over everything. That's what it means. I mean, imagine... Imagine that you walked up to the Queen of England and spat in her face. Are you nuts? Right? I mean, it's like, it's just a horrible thing to do because Queen of England is you know, the queen and the whole royalty thing going on. And to, for you to, to insult her and offend her in that way would be a terrible thing. God is infinitely more royalty than the Queen of England. And when we sin against God, we spit in his face. We profane his name. That's what we do. How? Number 11. Here's a list of some sins. And what we're openly saying when we commit these sins. Selfishness. Here's what, here's what we're saying. We're openly saying, God, God lies when he promises to satisfy me as I serve others. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. He's a liar. Doesn't know what he's talking about. So we've got a cat box in our garage. Sometimes I see it and I think, you know, I could empty it out right now. Jan wouldn't have to. So and instead of, you know, God says more blessed to give than to receive. Instead of emptying out the cat box, I say, I'll let Jan take care of it. What a little thing. Okay, harming Jan. She's got to empty out the cat box. That's a bad thing. Okay, she does so much. All right. But as bad as that is, that's nothing. Because what I've, what I've just proclaimed to the world is, Jesus is a liar. Or he's an idiot. Because he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Not true. Not true. He's a liar, he's an idiot. One or the other. I've just proclaimed that to the heavenlies. By my selfishness towards Jan and the cat box. Greed. When I'm greedy, what I'm... Openly saying is that God lies when he promises to satisfy and provide for me. That he'll satisfy me more than money. When I get greedy for money, more than, when I love money more than God, I'm publicly saying that God's a liar in saying that. 
worry. God's not in loving control. God can't be trusted to care for me. We've all worried this last week. I have worried this last week. Okay? We all have worried. But do you feel that here's God before you with creation and his love demonstrated in the cross and all of his promises and his faithful to Abraham and his faithfulness to Moses, his faithfulness to Joseph, his faithfulness to Isaac and to Jacob, his faithfulness to David, his faithfulness to Isaiah, his faithfulness to Jesus, to, to Paul, all of his history of faithfulness. Here's God standing before you, faithful, faithful, flawlessly faithful to everyone. And I worry. I'm dishonoring God. I'm profaning his name. I'm saying you can't be trusted to take care of this. Jealousy, patience, I'll let you read the rest of these on your own. Lust, pride, slander, boredom, anger. Sin profanes God's name. Remember in Psalm 51 where David has committed adultery and murdered. Psalm 51 he says, God against you and you only have I sinned. Because as horrible as adultery was and murder was, what David did against God was infinitely worse. As horrible as the adultery and the murder was, David understood and trembled before having offended and profaned the glory of an infinitely majestic God. So we must never make light of sin. Yesterday's worry, gossip, or lust openly profaned the infinitely glorious God of the universe. Jeremiah 2, I'll let you read that on your own. Skip down to Ezekiel 36. Therefore, say to the God of Israel, for thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you've profaned among them. Okay, so the question is, so there's our sin laid out. How should God respond to us in our sin, to people whose every intention is only evil continually? Remember, God's holy. His perfection set him infinitely above everything else that is. And God's righteous. He's passionately devoted to upholding and displaying his glory. So how should God respond to people who have defamed his Glory. The answer is wrath. It's just. It's right. Look at Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 1.18. A couple other passages. Skip the next one. Look at Revelation 14, the second paragraph down. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, it's just a description, kind of a picture in the book of Revelation of people who are turning away from God, turning away from Jesus. So that'd be be all of us if we're turning away from God and Jesus. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So the wine 
of God's wrath. Wine was often watered down in those days. This cup of God's wrath will be poured full strength into the cup of his anger, unmixed with pity, unmixed with anything that would lessen its intensity. And then Hebrews 10. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So I would guess some of you have been spiritual, religious, churchgoers, and you are, you are not connected to Jesus Christ in a saving way. And if, if God could use this to awaken you to the seriousness of the stakes, if God could awaken you to what is going on and the God that you stand before, make me very happy. Number 14. A couple of comments on God's wrath to clear up some misunderstandings some have about it. God's wrath is not natural consequences that happen when people disobey. It's God's righteous, personal anger against those who belittle his glory. God's wrath is not him losing his temper. It is his settled determination to punish those who have profaned his glory. God's wrath is not petty or vindictive or harsh. It is righteous and it's holy and it's good. Do you see, do you feel that you were under God's wrath for your sin? Do you understand that? Again, we're bucking the whole thrust that everything's got to make me feel good or it's suspect. This is not going to make you feel good in and of yourself. There's just no way. But it's true. This is who you were. This is who I was. This is what I faced. Do you feel that? It's right of God. It's just of God. God looked at the wickedness of the earth and saw that every intention of our hearts was only evil continually. Knowingly, only evil continually. Here's a couple quotes. I'll just read the first one. You can read the others on your own. As God necessarily loves himself, he loves his holiness, his majesty, the glory of the Trinity, passionately, with, with omnipotent power, he, he loves his majesty and glory. So he must necessarily hate everything that is against himself. That's righteous. It'd be unrighteous for him not to. And as he loves himself for his own excellency and holiness, he must detest whatever is repugnant or against his holiness because of the evil of it. Since he's infinitely good, he cannot but love goodness as its resemblance to himself and cannot but abhor, hate, oppose unrighteousness as being contrary to him. So what I want you to see, it's so, so vital, is that God's word lays it out very clearly that we have all stood under God's wrath with no excuse. Do you feel that? There's just no excuse. The reason is because of this heart. The reason is because of all these hearts. It's because of me. Only evil continually. There's another passage which says that we were enemies of God in Romans chapter 5. We were opposed to God. 
Now, go to the next page. So understand that you stand under God's holy and eternal wrath. That's just what I was talking about. Skip down to that second passage there, Luke 18. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, let this truth of God's wrath and of your sinfulness destroy. Let let it destroy any pride or self-righteousness or self-reliance that we have. Let it just humble you. Just like put you in the dust before God. Because it's true. Listen, it's absolutely true. Now, I'm kind of talking over my head here because I'm feeling this like about this much compared to how much I really should feel. But I guarantee you, 100 years from today, you will see it. When you see him, you will see it. Our problem isn't that we see our sin too much. It's that we see God way too little. Way too little. Let it destroy pride, self-righteousness, self-reliance, and deeply humble you before God. Romans 3, that every mouth may be stopped. No excuses. No protest. I deserve wrath. Period. A thousand times over. A million times over. Period. No excuse. Do you feel that? There's war going on for your soul right now if you're battling this. There's war. Pride? I don't know. I don't, you know, yeah, that's really, well, I don't know. There's war going on for your soul right now. God, Jesus, come, meet us. Help us to see this. So understand that you stand under God's holy and eternal wrath. Nothing you yourself can do to stop sinning. Make up for your sin. Avoid God's wrath. Now, number two. With that backdrop, are you seeing it? Are you feeling it a little bit? Now get this, be amazed at the mercy of God, the love of God. This is who we were, okay? This is who we were. We gave God every reason and an infinite time more than that to just be, be done with us. I mean, how many times did he say to Moses, I'm done with him, right? Just destroy the nation, start over again, Moses, well, said, God, for the sake of your name, don't do it. Okay, for the sake of my name, I won't do it. There's no reason in us that would make God do this. Be amazed at the love of God, the mercy of God, in sending Jesus to die and rise again so that people like us can, number one, receive new natures, which trust and love Jesus. Number two, have all our punishment that we deserve poured out upon Jesus, and that we can receive Jesus' perfect righteousness as a gift, all of this so that we can know Jesus as our all-satisfying treasure. Look at Ephesians 2, 1-5. through 5. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. walked. Dead, okay? Physically alive, spiritually dead. Dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. We were, by nature, children of wrath, facing God's wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, okay, that was all going one way, wrath, okay? It was all going wrath way, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. No! How can that be? 
But here I am saying, no, stay away from me. I don't want you. I hate you. I'm your enemy. God says, I love Steve Fuller. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Why? There was no good reason in me for God to love me. Do you understand that? The answer is not in him. The answer is in God. Look at God's amazing love that he would look upon you in your sin, fully deserving his wrath, and that he would love you. He loves you. His great love with which he loved us. No. I mean, there's the, there's the old hymn that says, And can it be? That I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who pursued him to death? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? How can that be? The answer isn't in me or in you. The answer is in him. He is amazing in his love. But you won't see that if you won't see the sin that you were and that you lived. You have a very puny view of God's love if you don't own up to this. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. I'm going to make that dead Steve Fuller, I'm going to make him alive. He's running from me. I'm going to go after him. He's running into the street, going to be mowed down by the Mack truck of my wrath. I'm going to grab him, pull him back, so he doesn't get, get run over. He wants to run into the street. I'm not going to let him. I love him with great love. Gets me, makes me alive, pulls me back, changes my heart. Isaiah 53. Surely Jesus has borne our griefs, the griefs that we deserve forever in hell because of our sin. He's carried our sorrows, the sorrows I deserve to feel forever in hell poured out upon Jesus. He's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes were healed. Okay, so picture it like this. Here's God the Father. Here's Jesus the Son. And here's Steve Fuller. Here's you. You, me, we deserve God's white-hot wrath forever. No excuses. It's what we deserve. We have come to us. And God chose, here's Jesus, God chose instead of pouring out his white-hot wrath upon me, he chose instead to pour his white-hot wrath out upon Jesus. And he punished Jesus because he loved me. He punished Jesus because he loved you. Do you feel that? That's why we can be forgiven, because all of our punishment was poured out upon Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. God made him be sin. All of your sin put upon Jesus. All the sins put upon Jesus, punished in our place. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God, clothed with his perfect righteousness. Okay, so get this. I was running away from God as fast as my little legs could carry me. God stopped me. I was dead in my sin. Made me alive. Punished my sins upon Jesus. 
clothed me with Jesus' perfect righteousness. He changed my nature, changed my heart, forgave all my sins by punishing Jesus, clothed me with righteousness, all so that I could now have the all-satisfying treasure of knowing Jesus. That's what he's done. Why would he do that for me? So that forever I will be a, a monument of God's mercy. So that forever God's going to hold up Steve Fuller, hold up you, and say, am I merciful or what? Look at my mercy. Look at who Steve Fuller was. Look at what I did for him. I am gloriously merciful. Look at that. That's why he does it. So number three, I want to urge you to repent of your sin and trust Jesus as your Lord, Savior, and all-satisfying treasure. I just want to encourage you to flee to Jesus Christ. If you're seeing, and I hope you are, are you seeing that you're under God's wrath? You are. If you've been saved, you're not. But if you haven't, then you are. And the only Savior there is is Jesus. He is the only Savior. It's like He's the asbestos shield. Okay? White hot wrath is coming. There's only one asbestos shield. Jesus. Okay? Jesus is the only asbestos shield. Not going to church. Not being spiritual. Not trying to be a good person. Not, with all due respect, Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam. Only Jesus is the asbestos shield. He's the only one. And the only way you connect with Jesus is by faith. Trusting him. Not by trying to be good enough so he notices you. Not by trying to be righteous in yourself. There's only one way. Trusting Jesus. You, in your heart, you trust him. You love Jesus. There's a heart, personal connection between you and this living being, Jesus. And you love him. And you trust him. That's the only way you're, you're connected to him and behind the shields. Okay? Are you trusting Jesus? Are you trusting him? Are you, in your heart, trusting Jesus? Not, are you going to church? Not, do you try to be spiritual? Not, do you try to center and, you know, get peace? No. Are you trusting the living, resurrected Jesus Christ who died for your sins? If you are, you're saved. The wrath will pass over you. You're behind the asbestos shield of Jesus. At 1630, He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Faith in Jesus. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay. So I just plead with you. Repent of your sins. Put your trust in Jesus. Like right now, repent means you say, I'm going to turn away from the old way of living, of being independent from God. Faith means I'm going to trust you, Jesus. You're my Savior. Trust you as my Lord. You call the shots. I submit and surrender to you. You're my treasure. You are my satisfaction. I love you. The joy of knowing you is what I want more than anything else. I trust you. Trust Jesus Christ right now. I plead with you. Do it. Trust him. Trust him. Number four. We who have been saved by Jesus will never stop being humbled for sin because this will glorify Jesus' mercy and because glorifying Jesus' mercy will fill us with joy. Just take that second paragraph there. I'm sorry, third paragraph. Here's what Paul writes. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
I've heard somebody say once that we should never call ourselves sinners once we've been saved. It's not what Paul does. I'm the foremost of sinners. I am. I am the foremost of sinners because I persecuted the church. But I received mercy for this reason that in me is the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul is the chief of sinners forever will be a display. He'll be a, a demo of how merciful and patient Jesus is because he, the chief of sinners, was saved. Remember Isaiah 6? Isaiah sees a vision of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he was busted because he says, woe is me, I've got unclean lips. He, he saw God's holiness and saw his sinfulness. The closer you get to God, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you see God's holiness, Jesus' holiness, the more you'll see your sinfulness. Not the less. The more, because you'll see more of him. And because you see the more of your sinfulness, the more you will love Jesus. And the more joy you'll have in Jesus. See how that works? Number five, don't make light of sin. Don't just say, well, it's just what I do. I, yeah, I've got a hard time with that. Yeah, it's, it's, don't do that. Sin is profaning God's holy name. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Don't make light of sin. And then number six, if you're trusting Jesus as your Lord, Savior, and all-satisfying treasure, let his, my dad likes to use the phrase, Gethsemane love. Just because remember the Garden of Gethsemane, he's, he's sweating drops of blood, grappling with, he has to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. And if there's some other way, Father, do it, but I want your will more than everything else. And then he says, yes, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the cross. His Gethsemane love for you. Do you see Jesus' Gethsemane love for you? Look at the implications when you do. 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. Jesus died for all of us. Therefore, all have died. We've, when we see Jesus' love, see his death, we die to everything else we were living for. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. The glory, the mercy of Jesus' death, the beauty of Jesus' Gethsemane love, the beauty of Jesus' Golgotha love for you is so amazing that it should kill any other ambitions in your life other than living for Him and His glory alone. You go into your home I want Jesus to be magnified here and, and, and glorified here. You, you, you're in your neighborhood. Oh, Jesus, look at your Gethsemane love. I want your love to be lifted up. I want my neighbors to see Jesus' love. Go to the workplace. Oh, I want Jesus' love to be magnified here. Look at what Jesus did. Jesus, I'm, I'm dead to all desires to be impressive to other people. I want you to be impressive to other people. I want people to see and be impressed by you. As you live your life, as you pursue your life, you see Jesus' Gethsemane 
love, the grandeur of it, the mercy of it, the undeservedness of it, the goodness of it, the beauty of it, the glory, the majesty of it, and just like everything else should just fall away from your life. And this burning passion arise in your heart to live for Jesus Christ alone, to trust him, to obey him, and to glorify him in everything you do. That's what I want to call us to do. I want to be a pastor, a person, pastor. I want, I want you all to be people. I want us to be a church who is dead to everything else except living for the glory of Jesus Christ. See his love. See his love that he would have for a sinner like you. You were a sinner. You were a sinner far worse than even you think now with what you've heard. It's worse. We aren't, we aren't plumbing the full depths of it. All of us are more sinful than we could possibly conceive, and all of us are more forgiven and saved and loved than we could possibly conceive. And they go together. Let's stand together. I want to pray over us. Some of you need to repent of your sin and trust Jesus. It's as simple as that. Turn your heart towards Jesus and trust him as your Savior, as your Lord, as your all-satisfying treasure. Do that now. You will be saved, forgiven, transformed, adopted into his family, forgiven, changed, loved. Do that right now. Others of you, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will maybe help you see some areas of sin that you've made light of. Do you feel that yesterday's gossip profaned God's name? Do you feel that Thursday's lust was a cosmic blasphemous act against Jesus Christ? Publicly profaning him? In the heavenlies? Do you feel that? It's not just I made a mistake or yeah, I've got a weakness here. You've got to call it for what it is. To see Jesus for who he is. To see his love for what it is. To see the wonders of his salvation for what it is. So, so stop taking sin lightly. Don't do that. See it for what it is. Others of you have been plagued by guilt over some sin. And I want you to see the cross afresh this morning. Forgiveness is yours in Christ if you'll trust him. No matter how hateful that sin was, there is no sin so evil that Jesus' death can't pay for it in full. In full. Completely. So trust him. Stop living under the weight of that guilt. Trust him. Jesus, work in our hearts right now, I pray. Save people right now by your supernatural power. Make men and women, young people here, alive right now. People who walked in here dead this morning, make them alive right now, in Christ, through Jesus. Mm. 
do that right now, we pray. Give them faith. Give them hearts that love you and trust you. Wash them clean from their sins. Do that right now, I pray. Lord, those who are still living under the weight of guilt, let them see the cross. See the wonder of the cross, paid in full. It is finished, you said, Jesus, on the cross. And Lord, those who take sin lightly, help them feel. Help them feel what it means to deny Jesus and to confess from the heart and to mean it. So move upon us, Lord. And Jesus, what I want to say, what we want to say most of all is thank you for your love. That you would love me. That you would love us is an astonishing thing. And yet you do. You love me. Thank you. Thank you for your love. Your Gethsemane, Golgotha, Calvary love. You loved me and gave yourself up for me. For all of us. Thank you for your love. Move upon us, Lord, I pray.